Dear fellow redeemed, we consider especially the gospel record of our Lord's resurrection from the gospel harmony that we just read. And as we begin, the question that we are prompted to discuss, and the question that we have to look at is, what does Jesus do with doubt? What does Jesus do with doubt? And to, to help narrow us and focus us a little bit more, um, I'm going to read from one of the one-chapter books of the Bible, the book of Jude. Um, and I, I say this is one of my favorite verses, and I know I say that like almost every week. <laughs> but uh, Jude chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 20, reads like this. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. And then he says three things. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. And that last phrase, um, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh, Jude is a Jewish man, um, apparently the half-brother of Jesus, uh, the son, one of the sons of Joseph and Mary. Um, obviously, Jesus didn't have Joseph as a father, so they're half-siblings. And Jude is writing as a Jewish man to a Jewish audience who knows the Old Testament scriptures. And so when he says, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh, He's picking up on something from the Old Testament scriptures, that idea of being ceremonially clean or unclean, um, that only those who are ceremonially clean could come into the presence of God for worship. That if you're ceremonially unclean, such as um, having had contact with, with a dead body, whether human or animal, or maybe touching a piece of, you know, place in your house that had some mold or mildew, or touching something that somebody unclean, some yeah, touching some something that somebody unclean had touched, then that would make you ceremonially unclean. Yeah, these are difficult words, kind of a tongue twister. And so that's the idea that Jude picks up on here. He takes that Old Testament idea of being ceremonially clean or unclean, and he's applying it with this spiritual truth to Christians today. When he says, when you're dealing with those who are very, um, very anti-Christian or antagonistic about their unbelief, then exercise some caution. Don't fall for the idea that just by being a part of their life, you'll have a good influence on their life. But rather exercise the same sort of caution that the Jew Jewish people of the Old Testament would exercise when dealing with someone or something that was unclean. So those are the three categories, and we'll end up taking them in reverse order. So I'll reverse it. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. In other words, watch out. Snatch others from the fire and save them. And be merciful to those who doubt. Now question, what does Jesus do with doubt? The very first group that we, that we see... <laughs> The very first group that Jesus deals with, in a way, is that group that wants to deny the reality of the resurrection. That group of the chief priests and Pharisees 
who even um, Caiaphas himself, or maybe it was Annas, his, uh, his father-in-law, had said that it would be better for one man to die for the people than for all the people to die. And he said that as high priest that year, and he didn't know how true it was. And so now after, after they have crucified Jesus and after he has been taken down off the cross and he has been buried, this first group says, time out. We got to make sure that he stays buried. And these are the antagonistic ones. The ones that have heard what Jesus has said, they have seen what Jesus did, and they don't want to believe it. And in fact, they have come into contact with all that Jesus has said, and they kind of answer with, but time out, I want to do what I want to do. And I don't want this Jesus imposing his, his values or his lifestyle on my life. I want to do what I want to do. And so they want to try to deny the reality of the resurrection. They want to fight against God and try to make sure the resurrection doesn't, ha- doesn't happen. They go to Pilate and they ask for permission to post a guard and that's what they do. And then they wait. And how does Jesus deal with them? Well, the exact same way that he dealt with the unbelievers of old who had perished in their unbelief, in the exact same way that he dealt with Satan himself, who was obviously the most antagonistic of, of anybody. Jesus deals with them with reality, the reality of his resurrection. He raised himself from the dead um, early, early on Sunday morning. His soul came back from heaven, reunited with that body. And the very first thing, if you remember from last week, the very first thing that he does is he descends into hell. He is just going about and doing exactly what he said that he would do. He's not going to buy into or um, comply with their attempt to stifle reality. He raises himself from the dead and goes about his business. And then he has an angel come. He sends a couple of angels uh, to roll back the stone to demonstrate that the tomb was already empty. And the angel, I mean, you just kind of picture it... um, I don't know, sometimes I picture it like, almost like Tinkerbell from, from Peter Pan. Like the angel rolls back the stone and, and sits on it. Like there's nothing to fear here, folks. The reality declared. That's the first group. And then the disciples start coming. The, the ladies come and they, um, they want to prepare the body. And how does Jesus deal with those who don't? That's still in that, uh, that first part. And then the second part, the ladies come over the hill. Mary sees the, the tomb is, the stone is rolled away. And so she runs back to tell the disciples. And the other ladies go ahead and they meet the angels. And the angels say, you know, don't fear. Why, why are you here? Almost chuckling, you could hear it. Why are you here looking for somebody who is alive? This is a graveyard. This is a cemetery. This is a place where dead bodies are. And Jesus is not dead. How does Jesus deal with those who doubt. Well, then he, then he addresses them with reality, and he gives them a promise. Go and, and tell the rest of the disciples, and tell them to go on to Galilee, exactly as he said, that he would meet you there. Jesus had to rise from the dead. He told you that he would. Don't you remember? You see that he doesn't deal with doubt. He didn't send these messengers with a message um, of some, some trick 
He doesn't have these messengers perform some miracle. All he does is give these messengers a message to share. A message that talks about the reality of the resurrection and the comfort and the certainty for their lives. And so this is obviously still kind of mind-blowing. They've, they've got this whole backpack or a couple backpacks full of the, the funeral spices. And <laughs> what do we do with this now? And they go on their way. Shortly after that, John and Peter come running. And John's a little bit faster, but Peter just charges right on in. <laughs> And they see the, the grave clothes. And they see the grave clothes there that, they are, that they've been folded up and they've been placed there um, as proof, first of all, that if this, was a, if this were a grave robbery, they wouldn't take the time to unwrap a body. Like, that's just, besides illogical, that's kind of gross. Um, but then secondly, Jesus folds it up to demonstrate that, that he is the one who raised himself from the dead. And the disciples... Peter and John go walking back, still wondering. And what does Jesus do with doubt? How does Jesus deal with doubt? There is John who had been there at the foot of the cross nearly to the very end. And there is Peter who the last time he had seen Jesus, he had called down curses upon himself and said, I don't know the man. And Jesus deals with them both in the same way they are confronted with only the reality of what he had said. He doesn't appear to them right that moment, although he did appear to Peter a little bit later. And then as they're walking back, and, Peter's, and Peter and John are trying to parse this out in their minds, and perhaps Peter has feet like lead, still thinking about his own denial of Jesus. Then Mary Magdalene gets to the tomb, and she's the first person to see the risen Lord. And she's, she, in her weeping and in, in her grief, she thinks that Jesus is the gardener. She doesn't even look at him like um, he still has all visible wounds from his crucifixion, although his body is now in a glorified state. But in her distress, she's not thinking clearly. She doesn't see clearly through her tears. And how does Jesus deal with her? Not with a rebuke but with a word of comfort. Not only that, a word of familiarity, a word, her own name, that, that she had heard numerous times in discussion and conversation um, as, yeah, the, the Jesus the Good Shepherd calls his little lamb by her name, Mary. And she turns and recognizes him, teacher. How does Jesus deal with doubt? Be merciful to those who doubt. And we see it right here. <laughs> Jesus doesn't rebuke her for thinking that he was the gardener or for the, uh, the illogic of grave clothes over here, but he absconded with the body over there somewhere. Um, even though human minds will try to dream up something that anything that will stand in for the reality of the resurrection, Jesus deals with doubt with his word of certainty and his word of truth and his word of comfort and a word that is familiar in this, this relationship that we hear, go tell my brothers. After the resurrection, here is the first time that, that he refers to those disciples as his brothers. Talking about the whole group of disciples, about 120, um, if you read Acts chapter 1. About 120 disciples, uh, men and women together. 
But Jesus had made himself, had made himself to be their brother. And that changes the relationship because he talks about the reality of the resurrection, but then he addresses their doubt with a word of comfort and a word of familiarity, a word of certainty. But then it goes on, and you've got those Emmaus disciples. And out of all of them, this one looks the most heartbreaking. Like, I understand the women going there, and they're kind of confused because they were ready for a funeral, and it was more like a celebration. I understand Peter and John with their vastly different experiences from Thursday and Friday, um, and walking home wondering and scratching their heads. But then these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, we had hoped. We used to hope. We were hoping, but we aren't hoping anymore. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. But obviously, after the worst day of our lives, Jesus let us down. We were hoping, but we don't anymore. These two disciples, Cleopas, a man, and we don't know who the other person is. Maybe Maybe his wife, maybe another fellow believer, we don't know. But they had walked with Jesus, they had talked with Jesus, they had attended faithfully and maybe even lost out on some relationships with family and friends. They had sacrificed for Jesus and supported him out of their offerings because they thought that he would be the one to redeem Israel. But they don't hope that anymore. Because Jesus was dead. We used to hope. And after the worst day of their lives, it looks like like Jesus had fallen through. Like all the promises that they had pinned their hopes on, that all the promises that Jesus had made were uh, useless and hopeless. And what does Jesus do with those who doubt? He walks with them. Like six or six six and a half miles. Um, And if you're thinking, you know, maybe 20 minutes for a mile for a leisurely stroll... He's got an hour and a half to two, maybe two and a half hours with these disciples. And what does he do? Starting with Moses and all the prophets, he doesn't do a miracle for them. All he does is point back to what he already said, his certain word. Don't you know that the Christ had to suffer these things, that he had to die? And when they get to the, get to the house, Jesus makes as though he's going, all right, guys, see you later. <laughs> and they invite him in. And what does Jesus do with those who doubt? He reveals himself. After all that talking, then he himself assumes the role of of the head of the household, of the person to lead the prayer and distribute the portions. He breaks the bread and opens their eyes, and then he vanishes from their sight. And these two who just spent, you know, two, two and a half hours walking those seven miles, they run back in the dark, to that upper room, just in time for John chapter 20. What does Jesus do with those who doubt? Maybe it's the first group, and chances are that all of us here know at least somebody from each of these different categories, types, groups. That first group who have enough familiarity with the Bible to think that they know what the Bible says. Or maybe even who had been instructed well enough so that they do know what the Bible says and they don't like it. And so they they set up some straw man argument, some silly argument to say, well, here's the real reason why I don't want to believe. Here's the real reason because your church is like this, because your Jesus says that, your Bible says this. 
And all they're doing, really, is living in denial of reality. Denying the reality of the resurrection. Because that's where you have to end up. All those other questions aside, the bottom line is, did this man from Nazareth really rise from the dead? And the way that Jesus dealt with that first group who doubted was he just went about his business and he proved it. He raised himself from the dead and then he descended into hell to declare that resurrection to those who had disbelieved and those who had antagonized and persecuted his church. How does Jesus deal with those who doubt? With the women and then Mary Magdalene and the disciples, he does the same thing. He doesn't perform another miracle right there. He simply says, don't you remember what I said? He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. That's what the angels said. Go up into Galilee, and he will meet with you, exactly as he said. And he adds, he adds that term, that terminology, that term of endearment. Go tell my brothers, my brothers and sisters, because the relationship has changed, because the resurrection proves the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection proves the reality that God has forgiven sin. And the only thing that Jesus does with those who doubt is point to the certainty of the word again and again. And to those walking along the road to Emmaus, he's got a little bit longer of a discussion, but he does the exact same thing. Starting with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them again, he takes them through a Bible basics class, leads them through their catechism truths again. Don't you see that the Savior had to rise? Now, chances are that you could think of somebody from probably each of those categories, the ones who know the truth and have willfully turned their back to say, I don't want Jesus having that sort of influence, that much influence on my life. I don't want him telling me what to do, what not to do. Maybe that second group who maybe had the worst day of their lives and, and thought that, that Jesus and his promises weren't enough, as though a tragedy in life had completely broken their trust and their faith in the promise of Jesus. Or maybe another group of disciples who had, been, who had known it and who felt like like something that they had done had made them too far from God. Like there's Simon Peter, and he walks away from the tomb wondering what had happened. His thoughts consumed with the empty tomb of a Jesus that he still hadn't seen, a Jesus whom he had denied. Or maybe those disciples on the road to Emmaus, the ones who walked with Jesus and ran back. And what does Jesus do with those who doubt? He visits them, and he speaks to them. John chapter 20, he, he appears there in the upper room, and he demonstrates that he has flesh and bones, that he still retains his humanity, that he ate with them, and he sat down, and he greeted them to say, don't you see the reality in what this means for you and for me? It means that sin has been forgiven, that certainty is yours, but then he goes on further, 
He uses all of these disciples who had their own experience of doubt or distress or wondering or wishing. He uses all of these disciples and he breathes on them. That first Sunday evening, um, Thomas isn't there. And the disciples from Emmaus were there, as well as a few others. We know that that group numbered about 120. We don't know if all of them were there at the same time. But Jesus breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. That's what we call um, the keys. The ability to announce reality as it is. The ability, the spiritual ability to to declare to somebody, dear friend, your sin is forgiven. And how do I know that? Not because you have had a life change and not because um, I've been imbued with some special blessing from God, but simply on the basis that the risen Lord Jesus appeared to his disciples and gave to his disciples the ability to forgive sins and to declare and announce exactly the reality as it stands. What does Jesus do with those who doubt? He calls them into his service and he empowers them to encourage others who doubt. And even there's that other part that that is a little bit more maybe perhaps uncomfortable. And it's worth a whole sermon in and of itself. Um, When he he breathes on them and he says, um, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, Whenever you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven that Jesus even empowers his Christians to deal with those who either knew the truth and willfully turned their back or who antagonize his Christians. And to deal with them not as a personal affront, but as a divine announcement. Dear friend, through your persistent sin, you are forsaking the forgiveness that Jesus won. Like, this isn't just me saying it, this isn't just our church saying it, but I'm just telling you the reality as it stands between you and God. That persistent sin is not the hallmark of faith. What does Jesus deal with those who doubt? It's ultimately given in his absolutely certain word. His word that he had proclaimed through Holy Scripture, and his word that he had had explained to the first apostles, and the word that Jesus says to you also. And brings home to your heart today. This certainty, this certainty of forgiveness is for you too. This certainty is, um, is what Jesus clothed you with there at your baptism. The certainty of his resurrection, that reality brought to your own life through that word connected with the water in a tangible way. So that you can say that there you were raised with Jesus and given a new life. And this blessed word, and even his, yes, his bodily presence in with and under that bread and wine that he pronounces to you at the altar. What does Jesus do with those? How does Jesus deal with those who doubt? He comes again. And he speaks again. To say, take and eat for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me that this risen and resurrected Lord Jesus did something as the reality, the real turning point of all of history. He raised himself from the dead with a spiritual certainty and a comfort and a power for Christians to declare today, to talk about reality as it really is. 
that this Jesus raised himself from the dead for the forgiveness of sins, that yes, indeed, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.